my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, inspired by International Women's Day, we cover a story that was, understandably, overlooked given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is, nevertheless, a hugely significant one for hundreds of thousands of women who have been the victim of rape or sexual assault. An official report has found that rape victims are continually and systematically being failed by the criminal justice system, with long delays between reporting a case and a prosecution. The communication isn't always very good either. The person that I was interviewing told me that when they had the email come through saying that the CPS wasn't going to take forward the case, the email was addressed to the wrong name. How much poorer can the communication be when you were being told that all of that effort, all of that time, all of that pain that you've gone through to report is not going to go forward and they don't even get your name right? I mean, this is just like a disregard for victims' well-being. Plus calls to change a legal provision in Scotland that campaigners say places a ridiculously high threshold of evidence, allowing 90% of alleged rapists to walk away without being prosecuted. Where are the rights and interests of the victim being represented? They're not. Victims are falling through the cracks every day of the week because the system is stacked against them. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by people like you who believe in honest journalism and reporting without fear or favour. We don't have an oligarch or wealthy proprietor telling us what to say and there are no corporate interests pulling our strings. Our money comes from the good folk who subscribe to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. Their subscriptions help fund this podcast, Byline Radio, Byline TV and our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Rape survivors are being continually and systematically let down by the criminal justice system. That's according to a recent report which revealed a lack of collaboration between the police and prosecutors, leading to delays and poor communication with victims. One startling statistic to emerge was the average of 706 days which elapsed from the date of reporting an offence to the start of a trial. Perhaps most damning of all, some survivors reported that enduring the legal process was worse than suffering the offence. The report by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and the Crown Prosecution Inspectorate did recognise the hard work of many dedicated police officers and prosecutors, but said their workloads are high and sometimes overwhelming. Only 1.6% of rape or attempted rapes reported in England and Wales leads to a prosecution, and conviction rates are falling, leading to claims that rape is being virtually decriminalised. To discuss the report, I brought together Byline Times Chief Social and European Affairs reporter Sean Norris with Hera Hussain, founder of Chain, which supports survivors of gender-based violence around the world. I put it to Hera that we've heard similar findings before. I think if that's the fact that is troubling, that we continue to hear the same issues being brought up in various testimonies from survivors, from the violence against women sector, from reports like this, there's almost every few months we hear like a new analysis which says the same things that are 
legal system is just not equipped to deal with reports of sexual violence. You know, in this particular one, I think what they've highlighted is the lack of collaboration between police and prosecutors, which creates months and months of delays and really sometimes re-traumatizing conditions for survivors. 80% of the people that we speak to do not report their experiences. So in the 20% that do report, mostly their experience is really bad. And so therefore, this report doesn't shock me. But what's shocking me is, despite having very sustained coverage, both in the mainstream media and academia and activism and pressure from civil society on the government, on Ministry of Justice, on the police, we are still not seeing any concrete actions that are resulting in a change of the status quo for, for survivors. The danger of these delays is that people who are already traumatised by their experience of rape or sexual assault are then re-traumatised by the process of seeking to get justice for that attack. Yes, I always mention this when I talk about rape and domestic abuse and you know, survivors reporting to the police, is that most people report not out of a consideration for themselves. They report because they want to make sure that this person faces some consequence so that this doesn't happen to someone else. It's so often the intentions are so deeply altruistic. And then for someone to then spend two to three years waiting for their case to be heard or to be told by the police that they sent their case to the CPS and the CPS refused to take it forward or that their police investigation takes months and months and are told that there will be no further action or to then like end up in court and then not see anything happen. The UK has one of the lowest rape conviction rates in the Western world, and it has fallen in the last year. The conviction rates are interesting when we compare them across countries in India. It's around 25%, 2025. Pakistan, where I grew up, it's about 11 to 16. In South Africa, it's 7%. So even if we just look at those conviction rates, the fact that the UK, like being a country that is very well resourced when you compare to other countries, having almost near decriminalization levels of conviction, if I am a sexual abuser and I look at just those numbers, you know, what message do I get? You know, you, we are telling people that there's a really good chance you're going to get away with it. And this is just the, the minority that do report. So all these messages from the government being, please go and report, please go and report. Why are we telling people to go and report if nothing's going to happen when they do that? Or if what they're going to experience in that process is going to be even worse and delaying their recovery and their healing because of the way they're subjected by the system. Yeah, I mean, that is... For me, one of the most shocking things to come out of the report, Sean, research finding that the victims felt they were the ones being investigated or standing trial rather than the focus being on the accused. Now, of course, we need to ensure that defendants are not the subject of some kind of vexatious charge or allegation, but we're not talking about one-offs here, are we? We're talking about a systemic problem in the way in which these cases are investigated. 
Yes, absolutely. And as Hira says, this is not new. We've known for a long time that victims of sexual violence feel that they are the ones being put on trial, but they are the ones being accused of doing something wrong. I think one of the big issues that we've seen in recent years is this kind of data scraping from victims or alleged victims' mobile phones. There was a report recently about where a woman reported her rape. She had an iPhone 6 and that was taken away from her. She still hasn't had that phone back and we're now on oh. iPhone 13. You know, this is how long people are being without their phones and she was talking about how there were pictures of her grandmother on that phone and her grandmother has since passed away you know it sounds like a strange thing but phones are really intrinsic to our lives and that kind of memories that they hold but more importantly I've spoken to people who've reported sexual violence who've said the police have gone through their whatsapp records you know text messages about to the vet about their cats like this is not data that is really going to help in a rape trial and in a rape prosecution And then, of course, alongside the data scraping of the mobile phone issue, we have these entrenched and seemingly immovable attitudes towards rape victims, which make it harder and harder for them to get justice. And this is, again, where victims feel like they are on trial. So more than a year ago, I was reporting on this, on this big dossier that a coalition of women's groups had put together, looking at the reasons why the CPS may have dropped prosecutions for rape. You know, there were examples of women who said that they'd been raped at knife point and their charges were dropped because they were drunk, because she was so intoxicated she wasn't sure where she was when the incident happened, because she'd had a relationship with the rapist beforehand, because in WhatsApp messages sent between her and the alleged rapist, they'd made sexual comments and expressed sort of sexual desires that they wanted to have sex with this person, as if you can't consent to sex in one moment and then be raped in the next moment. And I like looking at these dossiers, looking at these reasons for dropping cases and it feels like I'm back in 2005 when the amnesty survey came out which again said oh she's to blame if she's drunk she's to blame if she kissed the guy she's to blame if she went out wearing a short skirt how long is it going to take before victims are not judged and not blamed for their behavior and we instead focus on perpetrator behavior I can't believe that we're still having the same conversations about victims being put on trial when we know that being drunk, taking drugs, kissing a guy, expressing sexual desire are never excuses for rape. And as you say, we need to make sure that every defendant has a fair trial. We need to make sure that everybody has legal representation and has the right to make their case. But when you have someone who is going through such a deep trauma as sexual assault, and the questions are, well, how come you didn't know where you were? How much had you had to drink? What about this text message? It seems like you like doing this in bed. That's not acceptable and we have to move beyond it. Yeah, and it's about the balance of harm as well, right? Actual percentage of false allegations isn't according to one study less than 2%, another study is less than 5%. So it's really minute, but the public perception is that there are so many cases and no one denies that being falsely accused of such a grave crime would be really devastating. But what about the 95% of cases when those are absolutely true allegations and you're treated like you've done something wrong? So the balance of harms here is so clear. And I just find it really strange why both the legal system focuses on the minority of cases where they could get it wrong, rather than the fact that they are getting the majority of cases wrong themselves. Hera, I just wonder what women have told you as well about the delay in getting justice. You know, we know that the chances of getting a successful prosecution against a rapist are minimal. But Even if a case comes to court, it's 706 days on average from the date of reporting an offence to the police to the start of a trial. What does that wait feel like 
for those who have been abused. It is agonizing. And you know, there's another aspect of this weight, which is that once a trial starts, if you have been seeking therapy, your therapy notes can be requested in court. So survivors are often discouraged by people like me to not get formal therapy. Because when we talk about someone's healing for one of the most traumatic events they'll ever go through, stopping, it's a real problem. So not only are we like holding people in time, there's like a volleyball of police officers that were assigned and taken off the case and signed to the case. So I think it has dire consequences on survivors' confidence in public systems. When you experience a traumatic event like that, your ability to trust people around you and yourself is damaged. You're blaming yourself for it often. And most of the work that we do is about helping survivors figure out it's not their fault. And then when the system treats you the same way, then part of you starts thinking, well, maybe they are right. Maybe I should not have done that. I could have changed this outcome. So we work on like helping them remove this victim blaming that they've internalized. Everybody grows up in a victim blaming culture, in a rape culture. And if we don't address the really intrinsic issues of patriarchal notions that people have of the perfect victim, of what a traumatized victim looks like and behaves like and talks like, unless we take those things down, then of course, nothing is going to change. We can shout all we want, but these are like deep cultural issues that need shifting. While we should also work on very basic things like survivors to not hand over their therapy notes, let's not get their devices for unlimited amount of time. And in fact, when you refuse to give your devices to the police, it can count against you because that's you refusing to hand potential evidence. So that is often seen as a lack of integrity in the survivors. So there was a recommendation in the report that's just been published to have a sexual violence commissioner in the same way we do a domestic abuse commissioner now. These are like positive recommendations that are quite simple to implement and could really make a difference. I mean, one of the things that really stood out for me when I was reading the report was this issue of poor communication, both between different criminal justice bodies, be it police, CPS, etc., and also for victims. And I think this, again, comes back to the idea that victims feeling on trial. And I always remember a few years ago, I was reporting on a domestic abuse story. And the person that I was interviewing told me that when they had the email come through saying that the CPS wasn't going to take forward the case, the email was addressed to the wrong name. How much poorer can the communication be when you were being told that all of that effort, all of that time, all of that pain that you've gone through to report is not going to go forward and they don't even get your name right? I mean, this is just like a disregard for victims' well-being that is very, very easily changed because that's just a change of attitude. I think the other thing that really stood out in this report was this sense that police are feeling the pressure. They're feeling really, really overworked. They have a huge caseload and they don't necessarily feel that they can do the best job to their best ability. And again, that's something that can be changed with funding. We know that the police force was cut by 20,000 officers in the time of austerity. There's all these commitments to rebuilding the force and putting back those 20,000 officers. But again, that needs to be officers who are trained, having their biases challenged, who are getting trauma-informed training so that they can do the best possible job and not feel overburdened and not let victims down. There's just so many complex issues here. But the issues are complex, but the solutions are not because we know what we need to do. 
the government needs to hire better police officers, give them the right resources. At the moment, most police officers get less than four hours of training on trauma. If we're setting them up for failure as well, not only is there are the institutional problems with the police and their role and the power that they have in society, but how diverse the police candidates are. If you bring them into a system that is corrupt and biased in its nature, then no amount of goodwill is going to change that. So we need to change the systemic issues as well about how they're trained, how they're supported, and actually thinking about alternative like systems of support. So not every crime needs to have the police involved because they might not be best placed to deal with it. These things require a lot of sensitivity in many cases. And even having things like ISVAs and IDVAs, the funding for them isn't there. So they are independent advisors for sexual and domestic violence survivors. They're like your friend who understand the legal system and they go through it with you. They help you file paperwork, go with you to the police station. They're like your counsel, but they're not lawyers. So they can be, for the survivors that I've spoken to who've had them, when that system works, it is transformational because you have someone on your side helping you understand the complexities of legal systems. We need more money. There is not enough money being given to support victims and survivors of rape and sexual violence. We need to have rape crisis services in every major city or every city, every town in the UK. There is something, Sean, called Operation Soteria, which was praised in the report. This is about bringing together the police and the CPS to work better at not victim blaming identifying gaps in the the credibility of the defendant's case rather than seeking to suggest that the person who's bringing the case is not credible. So there is praise for that in this report. That does at least suggest that within the system, there are people listening to the points that you and Hera and other people like you are making. Yeah, absolutely. And Operation Soterio, as I understand it, is linked to Operation Bluestone, which was pioneered where I live in Avon and Somerset. So I think these moves are positive. The fact that this report is being published at all shows that there is an effort in place to say we are not getting it right. We need to do better. I guess maybe it's a cynicism from working in this area for such a long time or a concern is We've had these conversations so many times. We know that victim blaming persists. We know that the prosecution rates are so low. We know that reports went up, which was really positive, and now they are going down again, because why wouldn't they go down if it's not working, if reporting is not working for victims? So I think we really need to see action. We can't just have another report full of warm words, full of the right words, and not see action at the other side. And I really hope that this report gives an opportunity for change and that the recommendations are listened to and that women's lives and survivors and victims' lives are prioritised. Sean Norris, and you can read more from Sean at bylinetimes.com. She was joined by Hera Hussain, the founder of Chain, C-H-A-Y-N, which makes information available online for those seeking to escape abusive relationships. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this is the Byline Times podcast. Rape victims north of the border have an additional difficulty compared to their peers in England and Wales, and that's corroboration a unique requirement in Scots law that critics say makes it extremely difficult to prosecute the most serious cases of sexual assault. Indeed, an official report in 2011 recommended it should be scrapped for that reason. The Scottish Government, which supported abolition, backtracked in the face of opposition from many in the legal system, who feared it could lead to wrongful convictions. 
Now Holyrood has gone out to consultation again on corroboration, along with another quirk of the Scottish legal system, the verdict of not proven. Campaigners say change can't come soon enough. In 2019-20, 2,343 rape cases were reported in Scotland. Just 300 were prosecuted. Emma Bryson from the campaign group Speak Out Survivors has been telling me how corroboration works. Corroboration is required for each of the essential facts of an offence. And so when you're talking about a rape, you require two independent sources of evidence to prove that penetration took place. You need two independent sources of evidence to prove that consent wasn't given. You then need two independent sources of evidence to prove that the accused knew that consent wasn't given. And then you finally need two independent sources of evidence to prove that it was the accused who committed the offence. And in practice, what does that mean for victims of rape and other sexual offences? It means that it's practically impossible for your case to ever reach court because the bar is set so high. It's an unrealistically high requirement. So instead of looking at the body of evidence and making decisions about the quality of that evidence, that checklist is the starting point. The Scottish legal community will point to certain cases, kind of fairly recent cases in Scots law, where some of those requirements of corroboration have been watered down, shall we say. And the legal community will argue that this indicates that basically corroboration is being reformed by some sort of kind of organic process. In theory, that's all very well and good. But in reality, this takes many, many years to filter down into the vast majority of cases. And this is why, although we recognise that, yes, in some ways, corroboration has started to be addressed in some way in very specific cases, that's not true for the vast majority of cases that are reported. For the vast majority of cases, you are still looking at this checklist. You need two ticks for each one of those four boxes. And if you don't have that, then you do not have a prosecution. Does corroboration mean having an eyewitness to an attack? I think corroboration depends heavily on the ideal victim, if you like, who experiences a rape or a sexual assault and goes directly to the police so that you have forensic evidence and potentially, ideally, eyewitnesses as well. It really doesn't allow for the vast majority of rape and sexual assault scenarios that happen in private, that happen behind closed doors, that nobody witnesses what happens. And the only two people who can say with any certainty what definitely did happen are the accused and the victim. So in terms of having an eyewitness, that isn't essential, but that is one of the potentially key areas of corroboration? Well, it is. And again, it comes back to the idea of that sort of ideal victim or ideal scenario where potentially a stranger rape on a street, you know, in a public place where somebody sees something, if not the rape itself, and the victim goes straight to the police and there's forensic evidence available. For that bar to be set so high has no concern for the vast majority of rape victims who experience a one-to-one assault in a private setting that nobody else is witness to. And when we talk about forensic evidence, in many cases, victims have been so traumatised by the attack that they are unable to process it, unwilling initially perhaps to report it to the police, so that by the time they get to the point of reporting it, forensic information may well have disappeared anyway. 
Well, exactly that. And I think, again, for a lot of people who experience sexual assault and rape, it's not the first thing they think of is to go directly to the police. And I think for a lot of women who have an experience like that, there is a process of coming to terms with what's happened to them, to considering whether they want to tell anybody at all, let alone report it to the police. If they do report it to the police, they're not necessarily going to do that immediately. They may want to have somebody go with them. It may take some time to arrange or it may be an historic offence. I mean, it can literally be years for many victims and survivors before the prospect of going to the police seems like something they might actually consider doing. And again, the vast majority of scenarios, the forensic evidence just isn't available. And this is what we're talking about. We are talking about the vast majority. Yes, there are a small minority of cases where forensic evidence is available, where something happens in a public place that there are potentially witnesses where the victim does go immediately to the police. And in those cases, you are more likely to have a prosecution if you have those types of evidence. But in the vast majority, so around that kind of 90% mark, which I mentioned, the case is never taken forward because there just is not the evidence available to meet those requirements for corroboration. And if we're talking about historic offences as well, the bar is set so high that it must be extremely difficult for, let's say, a one-off offence ever to be brought to justice. It is. And I think a lot of people will see coverage of historic offences being prosecuted in the media, and they tend to be institutional or organisational abuse where you have more than one victim. And where you have more than one victim in Scotland, you can apply something called Murov's Doctrine, which is where each independent victim corroborates the evidence of the other. And on that basis, you can take historic cases forward. But again, we know that when you're talking of historic offences, when you're talking childhood sexual abuse, around 70 to 80% of that happens in an intrafamilial setting, which is in the home. It's often by a family member or somebody connected to the family. And there's only one victim and they don't report to the police until years after the fact. And that is extremely difficult to prosecute. What is the justification for corroboration being part of the Scottish legal system? Well, the justification is really around preventing miscarriages of justice and protecting the rights and interests of the accused and preventing false allegations from being taken forward, all of which are absolutely valid. And in terms of our campaign, at no point have we ever suggested that prosecution should go ahead without there being evidence available. We absolutely recognise that having good quality evidence is absolutely key to successful prosecutions and safe convictions. However, not being able to meet the requirements of corroboration does not mean that evidence is not available. It simply means that it's the wrong sort of evidence. So to argue that corroboration prevents miscarriages of justice in the greater kind of theory of things, but in reality, it prevents the majority of cases being taken forward. And the issue around false allegations and miscarriages of justice, again, I'm going to fall back on the statistics here. It's such a tiny proportion. I think that the accepted figure is around 4% of reported rapes are later proven to be false allegations. So the vast majority, and this is not an offence that people make reports about lightly. Again, there's that kind of stereotype that it might be somebody with an axe to grind who will report a sexual offence to take revenge on somebody or to cause trouble. That simply doesn't happen. The reporting it can be a really distressing and traumatic experience. It's not something that people do lightly. And I think that needs to be recognised. The whole idea of protecting the rights and the interests of the accused, that's not something we take issue with. Absolutely, the rights and interests of the accused should always be protected. 
However, where are the rights and interests of the victim being represented? They're not. Victims are falling through the cracks every day of the week because the system is stacked against them. And in Scotland, there's this additional barrier to conviction, not proven, which can be a verdict. Yeah, so at the moment, the Scottish Government is holding a public consultation looking at potential reforms of the Scottish criminal justice system. And the two key things that they're looking at there are the not proven verdict. So in Scotland, jurors have the option of three verdicts. You have guilty, not guilty and not proven. The not proven verdict is an acquittal verdict. So the outcome of a trial is it means the accused walks free. It's been shown to be disproportionately used in sexual offence cases. So juries often use it when they potentially don't want to convict somebody of an offence. And the other thing that the, the public consultation is looking at is the corroboration rule. So it's looking at, you know, should corroboration be abolished or reformed? And this is exactly what we've been campaigning on for the last four years. It's very difficult to compare cases across jurisdictions, but your organisation is founded by survivors. You have intimate knowledge of these kinds of cases. Do you think it's fair to say that there are rapists who would be convicted in England and Wales, but who, because of the law of corroboration, are escaping prosecution and conviction in Scotland? There's no doubt in our minds that sex offenders in Scotland get off free. They are not prosecuted. And we also know, again, coming back to the statistics, that someone who perpetrates one sexual offence will more than likely go on to perpetrate others. So it's very rare that it's a one-off event that's never, ever repeated. So on that basis alone, if you are only prosecuting 10% of sex offenders, that means that 90% of sex offenders, or alleged sex offenders, I should say, are going free. And potentially a significant proportion of them are going on to offend again and again and again. Now, in terms of comparing it to the system in England, it's a bit tricky because I'm very conscious of the fact that the statistics in England around the prosecution of sexual offences are arguably worse than they are in Scotland, but the system does work differently. In England, there have been issues with the way the Crown Prosecution Service has made decisions about prosecutions being taken forward that are completely different to the way that it happens in Scotland. So I'm not sure that suggesting that if the offences that are reported in Scotland were being reported in England, that there would necessarily be a huge difference in the number that are taken forward. I think what we would argue in Scotland is that because corroboration really only allows these very specific types of evidence to be admitted, we would like to see a system more closely similar to what happens in England, where the whole body of evidence is considered. So rather than just this box ticking exercise that corroboration requires, that all the evidence is able to be considered and decisions made based on the quality of evidence, not the quantity. Emma Bryson from Speak Out Survivors. The consultation on corroboration and not proven closes on Friday the 11th of March. I'm Adrian Goldbergen, just to let you know that the Byline Times podcast will be going monthly from this episode onwards, with a shift in emphasis. We'll have more big-hitting, big-name interviews. The kind of detailed analysis we've traditionally done here can be found on Byline Radio, where I'll be presenting what the papers don't say Monday to Friday at noon via Twitter spaces. So please follow at Byline Radio on Twitter. The next Byline Times podcast will come out at the end of the month. It will be worth waiting for. Just hit follow on your podcast page to make sure you don't miss an episode. 
Before we go, we just want to say thank you to Harvey White, who does so much of the production legwork behind the scenes, and to everyone who retweets or shares news of the podcast on social media. It is really appreciated, as we don't have a marketing budget. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.